This episode is brought to you by the generous support of LawPay, a Texas member benefit provider. Getting paid just got a lot easier. So check them out at LawPay.com. That's LawPay.com for more details. And now on to the show. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're still at the State Bar of Texas annual meeting here in Houston, and uh, we're recording live, obviously, and I'm not your regular host, of course. I'm not Rocky Deer, but uh, I'm a good substitute, I hope. I hope he likes what I'm doing here. Right, Paige? All right, perfect. So anyway, we have a wonderful guest joining us. She's very nice. Susanna Allen, she just gave the SCOTUS update, and uh, we're going to catch up with her, learn a little bit what happened in the Supreme Court session. So welcome to the show, Susanna. Thank you so much, Lawrence. It's my pleasure to be here. All right, now, obviously, you're a lawyer, but uh, where do you practice? What do you do? Certainly. So I'm an associate with Yetter Coleman, which is here in Houston, Texas. And we're a boutique litigation firm that does trials and appeals. And I do all types of litigation with them. And I've been there for about 18 months. And before that, I practiced in Washington, D.C. Excellent. Excellent. So, well, I guess welcome to the Lone Star State. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, this was obviously, I think it was a pretty interesting Supreme Court session. So let's just kind of hit general matters here. So it started, I think, in October. Maybe you can give us the dates, how long this particular session was. Maybe hit a couple of the highlights and we'll get into the specifics as we go. Certainly. So you're right. This is the October term 2021. And it's called the October term because the justices begin hearing oral argument on the first Monday in October. And for this term, that was October the 4th, 2021. And the justices actually had their last oral argument sitting on April the 27th of this year. So what that means is we've entered the part of the Supreme Court term where the justices are no longer hearing oral argument, but instead they and their clerks are really focused on drafting opinions, getting opinions out the door. Um, And historically, the Supreme Court and particularly the Roberts Court have issued most of their, if not all of the opinions in argued cases by the end of June, though it seems like they may be a little bit behind pace to meet that end of June deadline this year. So a little bit unusual then. Yes, I think it's the backlog at this point is fair to say it's unusual and it started to garner even some mainstream media attention. The justices have issued about 36 opinions, kind of depending on how you count them. Some of them were decided on the papers, but the more notable number is that as of today, June the 10th, there are still 29 decisions that the justices need to issue before the term closes. And if you kind of look back as to other terms, numerically, they're they're behind pace. And I think that that's significant, particularly given the number of outstanding opinions on really important and notable issues. Okay. And we obviously, uh, I think, in, unless you were in a news hole, we know that we got uh, a brand new Supreme Court justice. Uh, one retired and one is uh, made it through the nomination process. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yes, certainly. So uh, Justice Breyer announced his retirement in January of this year, 2022. And interestingly, he actually conditioned his retirement on his replacement being nominated and confirmed. And that has now happened. And Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson will assume her role on the Supreme Court at the end of this term. She has a number of stellar credentials, including being a former clerk to Justice Breyer and will be the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court. 
Now, this was not part of my constitutional law class in law school, but uh, now as far as her role until she officially gets in, when does she get to take on some cases, make a decision? So she will not be involved until Justice Breyer's retirement formally takes effect, which is at the end of this term when the justices take their summer recess. So it's up to whenever the justices finishes their opinions, he will step down and she will assume her role as justice and at that point begin participating in deciding whether to take up cases on cert and certainly will be this one of the sitting justices hearing oral argument when they begin October term 2022. Okay. I've noticed this. This is my personal observation. It seems like year after year, the Supreme Court gets more and more attention in the news. I think with very rare exception, I think there was maybe a quiet year a couple years ago, but it sounds like this is another big year. So maybe we could talk about some of those big monarch cases that have already been decided. Certainly. And I definitely think it's fair to say that this is a blockbuster term with a lot of important issues before the court. And there are a number that have already been decided, though the balance of the most Blockbuster cases are probably those that are still outstanding, and I'm sure that we'll touch on those. But as of opinions we've gotten already, we certainly have some important issues that the court has decided. We got a pair of decisions in cases addressing COVID-19 vaccination requirements. Earlier this year, the court took those up on an emergency application basis, and they were argued in January, and then shortly thereafter, the justices came down with opinions, one opinion upholding and allowing the rule to go into effect that requires healthcare workers at facilities that are involved in Medicare and Medicaid to be vaccinated, and at the same time blocking enforcement of a vaccine mandate that would have applied to any employer of 100 or more employees, which would have affected roughly two-thirds of the private sector. So those COVID cases are important both in the impact that they had on those rules and some of the reasoning on administrative law and agency authority. Another area of cases, or at least a case, where we already have um, a significant decision was the court's decision in Whole Women's Health versus Jackson, where it determined that a pre-enforcement challenge to the Texas Heartbeat Act, SB8, could go forward against certain state licensing officials. The court did not take up the underlying SB8 legitimacy itself. It just addressed whether the pre-enforcement challenge could go forward and found that for a narrow group of defendants, it could. Those subsequent developments, including a certified question to the Texas Supreme Court, make it seem like that case will probably not move forward. The last area of existing decisions that we have that I think is worth spotlighting are some of the First Amendment cases that we've gotten. I called it signs and flags uh, in my presentation. There was a case that found that an Austin city code regulation that distinguished between on-premises signs and off-premises signs was content neutral and thus strict scrutiny was not applied, which is, you know, an important development in the First Amendment speech jurisprudence. In another case, the justices found that there was a First Amendment violation when Boston had... um, three flagpoles in front of its city hall that it allowed one of the flagpoles private groups were 
allowed to have flag raising ceremonies and fly their private flags. And the city denied that request of a group to fly a Christian flag. And the court struck that down as a violation of the free speech clause. So I think those are some of the big ones we've gotten so far. I could keep going. There's some on arbitration that are also pretty interesting, but I think that that's a good group. No, that's a great grouping. And so I guess I know there's some outstanding ones that still need to be decided. So how about just a couple of those coming up that we can get excited about? There's going to be a lot of fervor. There's going to be a lot of argument on TV. At least we'll know about it in advance. Certainly. So... I would say there's about seven outstanding cases that have the potential to be quite notable and high profile. I think the top of everybody's list is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is the case that's expected to address whether there is still a constitutionally protected right to abortion. And that was, of course, the leaked draft opinion. And another case that is worth watching for is New York State Rifle Association versus Bruin, which puts at issue a New York regulation, a New York licensing program related to whether an individual can get a license to carry a concealed firearm outside the home. And this is the first opportunity for the court to really substantively address the Second Amendment and its reach since its 2008 decision in Heller. There's also a pair of cases about the religion clauses that should be pretty interesting. One is Carson versus Macon, and it involves a program for students in rural Maine and then about whether they can get tuition assistance for religious schools. The Maine program would not approve these funds for schools that provided religious instruction, and this is going to give the court the opportunity to address this evolving area and their evolving jurisprudence, potentially addressing some questions that have been left open from cases from prior terms. And there is another free exercise and establishment clause case that should be pretty interesting that involves a praying football coach in Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. It's about a football coach who would go to the 50-yard line, kneel and say a prayer after high school football games at a public school. There are some factual disputes in that case that make it a little bit extra interesting. And so it, it might give the court the opportunity to sort of address where the establishment clause ends and how this might impact the free exercise clause, which has been a little bit of a tightrope for things like cities and schools. I love it. That's a great rundown. And uh, no, I think that's uh, going to be a lot of stuff to uh, look forward to in the news. going to be a lot of talking heads going back and forth on that. You know, one of the things I really appreciated about some of your presentation was, and this is something, you know, if you just watch the news about the Supreme Court and you watch Congress argue about stuff and, you know, everybody getting uh, getting their uh, feathers up in a whatever, you know, I wouldn't know that the Supreme Court agrees most of the time and usually in a pretty big way. So I definitely want to share some of those stats. I think it's really good for just civic education. It seems like the, the ones that we fight over are relatively few. So maybe we could get a little breakdown there. Absolutely. So... It's correct that historically the Roberts Court has been unanimous in a pretty decent chunk of the cases before it, and the court has you know, been pretty proud of that. This term so far, again, we have 29 opinions outstanding, but for right now, as of June 10th, the proportion of 9-0 or 8-0 cases is 35%. This is actually a little bit lower than it has been in past years. At the end of 
last term, OT 2020, the court ended up being 43% unanimous. But when you look at the fact that there have actually been a disproportionate number of eight to one decisions this term, and you look at the 9-0 and 8-1 decisions together, this starts to look a little bit more like a typical Roberts court term because that bumps up the 8-1 plus 9-0 to, I think, 57%. But again, we have 29 opinions outstanding. We're late into June. It's not the time in the term where you typically would expect to see a waterfall of unanimous decisions. Otherwise, it's likely they would have come out by now. So it wouldn't surprise me if we start to see some of those statistics shift. And at the end of the term, this might look like maybe a little bit more of a fractured court than it has in the past. But again, this is, this is all reading tea leaves. Okay, well, let's close it out with a fun question. And so I, I asked you about this in the pregame because this story made the news. It was a big headline and all of a sudden it has disappeared. And that is the Supreme Court leak of the draft opinion. And so maybe walk us through that a little bit. Maybe tell the story just again for people that were living in a uh, news hole somewhere. Tell the story and then uh, let's get an update on where things stand today. Certainly happy to. So on May the 2nd, Politico published a draft of the Dobbs opinion, which as we discussed, addresses the constitutionally protected right to an abortion. And this draft opinion, which was apparently authored by Justice Alito, would overrule Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey and rule that there is no constitutionally protected right to an abortion. Well, let's stop right there just real quick. So this draft, this is not the final decision yet. This is just a suggestion. So in the part of this process, that document gets kicked to the other justices, right? And then they weigh in and then eventually they get to a final draft. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. At the time of the leak, Politico did report that there were five justices in support of the position of overruling Roe versus Wade, but it is important to emphasize that this is just a draft. The draft on its face was dated in February. We have no way to know what the status of the draft was really at that time and how it might change into a final opinion. So it, it is important to emphasize this is just a draft. And so now there's an investigation, right? So what's going on there? That's right. So the day following the draft, Chief Justice Roberts actually confirmed the authenticity of the draft, that it was a paper from the court, and ordered an investigation to be led by the marshal of the Supreme Court. So, you know, the leak is obviously a huge deal for the court. There's not been a leak of a draft opinion in modern times in a pending case. And we don't know a whole lot about the investigation. The investigation seems to be ongoing. On May the 31st, CNN reported that law clerks were being asked for their phone records and to sign affidavits about their knowledge and that, you know, the clerks are wondering whether they should retain independent legal counsel. But beyond that, we don't really know a lot of details and we don't know, assuming there are findings from this investigation, if they will ever be made public. Well, I, and this is one thing I just have no idea about. You know, let's say they do find that somebody leaked it and obviously a fireable offense. But beyond that, what penalty would any one of these, uh, you know, clerks or whoever it was that possibly leaked it face? Goodness, I really have no idea. The court is an institution that relies on trust and secrecy and confidentiality in the work that it does, understandably. You know, their decisions have a widespread impact and the confidentiality is very important to the court. So it could certainly have significant consequences. You know, if the investigation involves affidavits or other sworn statements, 
there could be issues if there's dishonesty in the investigation, but I just, there's really no way to know what the consequences might be, except that it would certainly be pretty consequential. I, my imagination is taking me to some bar associations out there are looking at who might be a member of their serving in this court right now. And that is really disruptive. I mean, that really breaks down the trust of a, of a very important institution. You know, and as lawyers, we swear an oath to our state bars to be upstanding in this regard and, and to try to not behave in a way that causes the public to distrust the institution of law. So I think whoever it was, if it's a group of people, you know, they may want to be uh, thinking about that. You know, that's a pretty serious activity. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but, you know, I certainly, as I've read a little bit, a lot of people are breaking down that institutional trust right now. And they're just looking at us like, what, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, we we have no way to know if the person that leaked this was, in fact, an attorney, a justice That's or true. a clerk. Right. Um, but I, I think we can all agree that, you know, trust in the clients that you represent, trust in our profession is extremely important. And certainly we want to give the public the confidence in us as attorneys and in the rule of law. Excellent. Well, Susanna, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you stopping by. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Well, let's leave some contact information. If people want to follow up a little bit more, maybe they want to figure out uh, what's going on with this uh, leaker. Maybe you've got some insights coming up later. Maybe it's a good blog post. How can they find you? So you can find me um, just, I don't have any social media except LinkedIn, but you can find me on LinkedIn or uh, send me an email. You can find my email address on the Yetter Coleman website. And I think that certainly if there ends up being more news on this leak on this issue, you will not have to come to me. You will see it on the front page of the New York Times. Okay, fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of the State Bar of Texas podcast brought to you by LaPay. Thank you so much, LaPay. Also, 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 thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and now Amazon. Thanks to Paige. Amazon Music, thank you, Paige. Or best yet, or better yet, your favorite podcasting app. I'm Lawrence Glady. Until next time, thank you for listening.